I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. There are 150 of them, but we're only going to deal with one today. That would be number eight, Psalm 8. And as you know, we concluded a many months study of the book of Isaiah last Sunday. And for the next 10 weeks, uh, we will be looking at 10 different Psalms. We did this five years ago. Uh, And we're doing it again this year. And of course, starting today, we're coordinating our sermons with the folks up at Central Bible Church as we step alongside that church to encourage and help. And so our preaching will be on the same thing each, each Sunday morning. Several years ago, when I picked up a different version of the Bible... Uh, I had one of those desk covers on it, and it caught my eye that it said, uh, a new version for a new generation, relevant for today's world. And of course, as one who thinks about words and things like that, that immediately caught my attention. I thought, relevant? Wow, I'm so glad finally somebody... No, I didn't think that. I thought, guess what, folks? Uh, The Word of God has always been relevant. It's relevant today. Whatever version you've got in your hand, relevant. It's relevant today because God always speaks to the things that matter to us the most. So I preach from the ESV, generally speaking. Today's text uh, has been a struggle in my brain because I memorized it originally a long time ago in the King James Version, and then again in the New American Standard, and about 90% of the way in Spanish. So as I read it in the ESV, all these other words keep jumping out at me. Let me tell you something. As we come to Psalm 8, why are we doing this? Uh, I've given you a few things on your study notes. In a moment, we'll pray and jump into the text. But some things to think about, about why we're preaching the Psalms, okay? If you think about books in the Bible, among the, the most loved is the book of Psalms, 150, the songbook of Israel, people have called this. But the Psalms speak to the human heart in a very special way. They're poems, of course, poems without the notes, but they follow a certain structure and form and meter that was, was current in that day. Sometimes we miss it because it's translated into English, whatever version we have. But they're, they're originally intended to be music, things that were sung by the people of God. When things were great, those are songs of praise. When things were awful, those would be psalms of lament. We'll visit some of those. Some of them are individual lament, where we, we read in a psalm, the writer is saying, Lord, this is so hard for me. My heart is broken, and where are you, God? Some of the psalms of lament are community psalms. Instead of, what's, it's going poorly for me, it's just going poorly for us. Lord, where are you for us? There are other types of psalms. I mentioned some of them here But in the 10 that we are going to be looking at over the next series of weeks here up until Labor Day weekend, um, we're going to cover the full range. You're going to find a psalm of praise, as we'll see today, but one that speaks to current issues in a surprising way, I think. We're going to visit next week a song of lament. Before long, we'll find ourselves in Psalm 56. Lord, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you. Help me in my waiting. So the Psalms speak to us about our human experience. If you've read all of them, you've even come to to some that are a bit jarring. Uh, Those are often under the heading of the imprecatory Psalms. Those are the ones that come out of such raw pain where terrible things have happened. And the writer says, Lord, pay him back. Punish evil. Even as we were so terribly treated, punish them. And it's just a, a raw cry from the human heart. And I think you'll find your own heart has similar expressions in different times in different ways. I'm glad for the text in front of us today. 
the, 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 the topics that we're going to see here are, are so contemporary. And I, I trust you'll see how and why. But I want to pray for us, and we'll, we'll invite God's help as we come to his word this morning. Pray with me, please. Our Father, how good it is to open the word of God together. This most important act for us as a church family of, of faith, pointing to Christ and pressing toward him all the time. And I thank you that you have cared for this church family over the last 51 years, and we're grateful for your care for us today. And I pray that as we open the word of God now and uh, look into its context and do that with an, with an open heart, Father, that the Spirit of God would have free access to us and, and help us to hear exactly what each of us needs to hear this morning. We, we trust you for this as we trust you with our own souls and our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the sermon notes in your bulletin, there's an introduction to the Psalms. I'll let you take a look at that. I've mentioned several of the things about the Psalms already. Just like you to be aware of the structure and form of the texts that we deal with as we preach together. Then I come to the little paragraph called today's text. And it's interesting to notice as you study the New Testament, just as we saw with the book of Isaiah over the last number of months, so the Psalms are heavily quoted in the New Testament. Not a surprise to us. Psalm 8 quoted Four times those specific areas are listed here. Uh, the psalm begins and ends with a similar phrase. As I read it here in just a moment, I, I want you to hear the first line and the last line that stand as bookends for all that we'll find in the middle. All right? So I'm going to read Psalm 8, 1 through 9, as we hear the word of God together, and then we'll talk about it and allow God to use his word in us. God's word, then, as I read. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man? And the term here, of course, means humanity. Not man in his maleness, but man in terms of mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's word. Wow. What a wonderful, wonderful psalm. I think most of us at some point in our life have not only today, but we have sung songs based on the opening and the closing line. O Lord, Our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, or how majestic is your name, certainly has informed many of the songs that we sing. Now, if you look at my sermon notes and the text uh, side by side, uh, we remember that Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. That's how it begins and ends, and even the part in the middle that we'll look at more closely, uh, it's a psalm of praise. It's praising God for what he's done. And at the same time, it is a psalm of instruction, where there's a lot to learn here in this psalm. Some psalms are all about instruction. This one is a praise psalm 
that gives instruction about biblical truth. Now, I mentioned here uh, on my notes, uh, in that opening line and closing line, just, just something it would be good for you to know. When it says, O Lord, our Lord, sometimes people look at this and just think, well, that's a repetition for emphasis or something like that. Ah, more than that. In most of our Bibles, maybe you didn't know this, but when you see the word Lord in caps, you see this? as it is in the ESV, as probably many of your Bibles. Oh, Lord, when it's in caps, the way the translators of most of our, I think all of our major translations have done this, that, that is a, that's meaning it's translating the word Yahweh, or as some would use Jehovah, Yahweh being more correct, based on Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses, Moses is heading to Pharaoh, or he doesn't like it, but he's going, and God says, tell Pharaoh, I am or Yahweh. It's a verb. And the idea behind it is kind of, you say, well, that's a weird name for God. It, the ever existing one, the one who is. For all the people who say, is anybody home? God says, yes, I am. And so he takes that as his covenant name, the God who is, the self-existent God, the one who has always been there. He is uncreated. Sometimes our children say, well, who created God? Maybe you've been asked that at some point. And of course, your answer is, well, if somebody created God, that one would be God, right? Because to create something is to exert power over it. Well, the Bible describes the God who is as always having existed. Sometimes people, I would say ignorantly, because they haven't thought about it very much, would say, that's hard to imagine. And I say, yes, but guess what, dear friends? You are stuck, even if you don't know it. You're stuck with something eternal, you are. Either it's a personal God who made all that is, or in absent, if he was absent, you're stuck with, with matter that's got to be forever, and nobody wound it up. It's just always been there, right? Always? Wow, that's a harder stretch than to believe in a creative and personal God who, who made what we see with such order and structure. So I think it's easier to believe in the person of God than it is to believe in his absence. There, small apologetic uh, for the existence of God. O Lord, Yahweh, the one who is. So, And then the second one, our Lord, that would be like our master, our sovereign. So the psalm begins and ends, O Yahweh, the one who always has been, always is, always will be our master. Okay, does that make sense? Our Lord, the second use of that. So it's, it's not just saying the same thing. It's a really powerful phrase. O Yahweh, the one who is, I am, the great I am as certainly Jesus made use of the phrase, I am, multiple times, as you know. Our master, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth? How excellent is your name? And a comment here as well. Sometimes when we read phrases like this, your name, or we sing of the, the praise, praise to the name of, as you read in the verse just preceding, verse 17 of, of, of chapter 17, I will sing praise to the name. Sometimes we think about it like a, a name of a friend, like, say you have a friend named Bob, and you say, Bob, I like your name. There, I like your name. And we see something here about the name of God. We say, well, I like your name too. Uh, that's, that's really not the way the Bible uses that phrase. When the Bible uses the phrase of like, worshiping the name of Jesus, it's meaning all that he is, his person, his power, his attributes, his character, all that God is to us. Is, is, in captured, is, is captured by his name. So to worship the name of Jesus, it's a way of saying, I worship Jesus and all that he is to me. So here, O Lord, O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name? How majestic are you in all the earth? Now, 
That's the same phrase at the end, isn't it? And I I quickly point out that for this psalm, that expression frames all that is. It's like bookends. So everything that is in the middle is captured by that expression. Oh, Yahweh, our master, you are excellent. You are glorious. You are excellent. Your name in all the earth, all that you are to us, you are excellent and majestic. I have this, of course, on your sermon notes under the heading, doxology should characterize our life and frame our worldview. Doxology, praise, the praise of God. Now, verse verse 1 continues and into verse 2. Those two verses really are an introduction to the sections that follow. So the songwriter, uh, the superscription in most Bibles will say to us a psalm of David, which is likely accurate. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, if you look at your sermon notes, I highlight a couple of things here um, on the second bullet point of the first section, top of the back page. Okay, that's where I'm at. True God-centered praise is right for God's people. When you realize what God is like, it is right that we would praise him. It is the right response when you, when you look at what the Bible says about what God is like. And I mention here, the heavens do declare his glory. That's a reference to Psalm 19, where we read, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shouts out his praise. The heavens do declare his glory. General revelation, that's, that's God speaking to us in what is made, which, by the way... Uh, Romans 1 tells us that God's, God's declaration of himself in general revelation is enough to hold people accountable, but it is not enough to save. You get to mull that over a bit. Enough to hold people accountable. That would be, for example, in Romans 1, where Paul is talking about this, about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against people who, who knew and denied it. He speaks of things that are evident. He says, even his eternal power and divine nature, which are clearly, clearly displayed in what he's made, so that people are, the Bible says, without excuse. They're without excuse. That text in Romans 1, please, please understand this. Uh, text in Romans 1 tells us that, that, that every single person, whether they admit it or not, have written on their soul the existence of something greater. Okay? I remember having an animated discussion of this. Uh, I could give you a longer context and a longer story, but I won't. I had an animated discussion of this with an older curmudgeonly person. He was, there was an antagonism in the conversation, I admit, and not me toward him, I don't think. Um, but he was explaining to me how foolish it is, all of this religious stuff. And I said something to him like, yes, but you know that God is there, don't you? And of course, he said, I, I do not. Then he went off and I said, uh-uh, no, listen to me. The Bible tells me that in your heart of hearts, you know he's there. And what you're doing right now, the reason you're so angry at me is you're trying so hard to deny it. But in your heart of hearts, in the quietness of the night, you know, you know, I know you know, because the Bible tells me so. Well, the conversation um, at that moment did not go well. Though I will say it went well later, because later he had a stroke, and I went to see him again 
and again and again in a care facility. And I fed him his last meal and did a funeral for him when he died. So later, yes, um, I, I followed with that. Um, God is. He is the one who is. And the Bible says every person who thinks well at all knows it's true. Now, that second half, you have set your glory above the heavens. Indeed, the heavens do declare the glory of God. I mentioned in my notes, certainly general revelation speaks of his praise. Special revelation, that is the word of God, calls us to worship him. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still or to quiet the enemy and the avenger. Interestingly, this verse is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21, 16, that one of the texts I gave you earlier. And it's the moment, as, as Matthew tells the story, where Jesus has cleansed the, te- the temple, that, that part where the nations were to come that had been turned into some kind of an organized flea market. It's where the peoples were supposed to come, the non-Jewish peoples. They were supposed to come, and it was full of animals. And Jesus was, was, was furious at this. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it a den of thieves, and you drove them out. And children, Matthew tells us, were praising him. And religious leaders, people who were not people of faith, were angry at Jesus and said, tell them to stop it. Tell them to stop it. And he quoted Psalm 8, verse 2. Interesting. At that moment, haven't you read your Bibles, he says? Haven't you read your Bibles? It says here, out of the mouths of infants, babies, praise In other words, from the mouth of innocence, uh, the praise of God is declared, pushing back against the enemy and the avenger, causing them to be still. Jesus took verse 2 and applied it to his moment uh, by application. Interesting to read that and all the other uses of this psalm in the New Testament. So I'm saying to us, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 9, frame all that is in the middle. And I'm saying to us, This should frame our worldview. Please hear me on this. In the middle sections, there are two, verses 3 and 4, and then 5 through 8. The topics that are here are so contemporary. They address things, questions, may I say, that are being thrown around and answered incorrectly by our generation. Uh, Not in surprising ways, really, uh, from the sense of of people who don't know the name of Christ and do not acknowledge him. They're going to come up with different answers. Um, but, 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 but this is framed by praise. And I'm saying doxology should inform. Doxology should inform our worldview. Now, what we're going to see here, and then I'm going to go to my third bullet point here. There's a question asked in verse 4. Incredibly relevant, if I may say. What is man, meaning humanity? What is a human? What is a human? Well, it's been asked recently, what is a woman? And apparently we don't know the answer to that either. What is man that you're mindful of him? Huh, there's a question. And, and why does man have, or mankind, why do we have worth? Whence cometh human value? Where is it from? What is it based on? Is it based on ability or money or status or brain ability, color of your skin, language, home of birth? What is human value placed on? When you think of those who are older and diminishing in their cognitive abilities and so on, is there value? What about those not yet born? If there's value, where does it come from? Ah, this text will answer. This text will answer even people who don't uh, know that it's the questions that have been asked just yet. Now, 
I go to my third bullet point here, and this is just a press back for all of us, if I may do so. Doxology should frame the worldview of believers, and this is harder than we think, because hear me, the voices around us in culture are loud and persistent, and to disagree is to be canceled or threatened with being canceled. It's, it's to be pressed back against. And I, I, I tell you, some of the, the, the social issues that are being debated, I'll not go into all of them. If you're paying attention at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These social issues about humanity and human value and so on, um, it is not surprising to me when people who don't know the Bible, don't know Christ, it's not surprising that they hold values different from the word of God, but it is incredibly surprising, shocking, and disappointing to me when those who name the name of Christ come down on the wrong side of some of these. Wrong, not because they disagree with me, but because they violate the values in the word of God. Giving into social media and what seems right to all your friends out there instead of listening to what the Bible has to say about human value is terribly distressing when you read things, even by people who say, no, I'm a Christian, and, and then you just, off you go, un- unraveling anything that's a biblical value. Shame on that. Shame on that. No, that is not the way it is to work. Doxology, the person of God, his truth should frame and inform how we answer those questions. Okay, so uh, we step in here then to the first, verses three and four. The big question, of course, in verse four, when the writer says, David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man? What is humanity? What are humans that you're mindful of him and the son of man that that you care for him? One of the things that I think we miss out on in our, our, our day, especially living in a town, we, we underestimate how much all the ambient light from our culture washes out the night sky. Uh, those of us who've ever camped, right, uh, ever been way out away from the lights of the city and the airports, know something more about what the ancients saw all the time. Uh, if you live in a place where there's no airport in downtown and a few little lights here and there, I'm telling you, the night sky, if it's, if it's clear, just shouts the glory of God. And think about this. David, in his time, and all of the ancient peoples, they saw our Milky Way. They saw one galaxy, just ours. And now, with the Hubble telescope and all the others helping us out, that we know that there are millions, no, millions of galaxies just like ours. Some bigger, big galaxies. Uh, the, the universe is filled, and we can't see the end. Millions of galaxies. So here, just looking at our own Milky Way, the, David looks at it and says, when I look at the night sky, I look at the heavens, and I'm, I pause to reflect on how insignificant I am. What, are, what is a human that you think about us, that you care Interesting, the things that make us feel so small. I've had a number of experiences because I like to camp and backpack and so on, of seeing the night sky in all of its glory and knowing its effect on your soul. The existence of God? No kidding. Look at that. To stare at a little spot in space. Uh, I'm sure you've done this. To stare, allow your, your eyes to adjust. Suddenly you start seeing other lights further back and further back. The depth begins to develop. First, you look up and say, oh, there's 10 or 20 stars there. And you go, wait, 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 wait. No more, no more. And that's just our solar system. So, so David here says, when I look at your heavens, something I suspect he did a lot, uh, part of his life, a shepherd boy, some of his life running from Saul, as you know, but all of his life, 
lived in a culture without all of that washing out of the sky and to look up and say, oh God, you made all of this. Now, a contemporary writer, uh, forget who said it at the moment, said no one looks at the night sky or at the Grand Canyon to bolster his self-esteem. What he meant by that is anybody who thinks looks at those amazing works of God and says, wow, how big that is. May I say Grand Canyon, of course, this is an aside, but I mean it, not formed by the Colorado River. Think about Noah's flood. I can defend that. Think about Noah's flood. Yes, in fact, flood theology uh, forms all of Grand Canyon, not the Colorado River, in however many million years. Took one flood to rearrange a lot of things. My point is to look at those big, vast expanses about anybody looks at and says, wow, I'm small. And yet the writer here asks the question, what is, what is man? What, what are we that you would be mindful of us, the son of man, that you'd care for him? Kind of a repetition there. Some see here in that second phrase, especially in some of the other translations, uh, Aramaic and so on, see a reference to a verse in Daniel, perhaps looking to the son of man, who ultimately would be Jesus. Not immediately apparent in these other translations. But the question that's asked, what, what is it? Now, I put this under the heading, human beings are not the measure of all things God is. And I, I, just, I, just, I just remind us here, the Bible speaks of why God would give attention to us. Even in that moment, saying, why would you notice? Well, this whole psalm pushes us back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The God who created all that is. This is the source of human worth. Can you hear that? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 lays the foundation for the whole rest of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, the first four, verse, uh, first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God, and then it begins to describe all that God made by his voice. God spoke, the psalm writer will tell us later, another psalm. God spoke and the worlds existed. Can you imagine here that he says, they're the work of your fingers. That sounds like something small. Indeed, God could speak them into existence. Imagine. So why, oh God, would you think of us? Because, as the Bible will tell us at the beginning, he made us. He made us. He made us. The, the Bible is very, very clear about how God sees us. He sees us. He cares for us. He is mindful of us. I hear, have here third bullet point under my second heading. The affirmation of Scripture. God is mindful of us. God does care for us. How come? Why? Well, for start, to start us, he made us. He made us. He made us. The Bible tells us he knows our name. Jesus says the very hairs of your head are numbered. Uh, Psalm 139 reminds us before there was a day in your life, the Lord knew them all. You're mindful of my ways. You formed me in my mother's womb. What a wonderful thing you've done. The personal knowledge of every, every single person. Sometimes kids ask not only who made God, but they ask, how can God keep track of however many, you know, what, seven billion? Are we going to go there? That's fine. People on the face of the planet. Guess what? If you can call into being millions, millions of galaxies, and Isaiah tells us, call them all by name. Keeping track of all the little people isn't all that hard. That's the testimony of Scripture. He knows our name. He knows your being. He knows your problems. He knows your heart. He knows your struggles. Cares deeply for you. And that's a thing that just amazes us. 
Human beings are not the measure of all things. God is. God is the measure of all things, the one who made it all. Now, shift with me then to verses 5 through 8. Why do human beings have dignity and value? So, the psalm writer continues, you've made him a little lower than, well, my Bible says the heavenly being. Some of your translations will say angels. Some of your translations will say God. You've made him a little lower than, than heavenly beings, I think is a good compromise for that. You've, you've, what is it? Crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, all placed under his dominion. Now, these verses very, very clearly call us to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. They do. I'd like to go back there. I want to read this. Some have called this down through the years the cultural mandate, not a bad expression for it. Uh, Chuck Colson, Nancy Piercy, and others will use those phrases to describe Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The cultural mandate's not new with them. So we read in this creation account, let us make man, again, mankind, humanity, God says, in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion, there's Psalm 8, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God did it. He made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he made, he created him. Watch this, male and female, he created them. Isn't that amazing? Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, blessed them both the male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see a battle against these verses? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. One of the things that I I love to do, even as I interact with, whether it's adults or children, you know, I'm a dad of daughters and a brother to whole posse of girls, no brothers. Um, I love to say, as we did to our little girls, what a wonderful thing God did when he made you a little girl. What a wonderful thing God did. Now, people are different. Some girls are girly girls with frills and uh, pink colors. Those were my girls. Uh, Climbing trees, shooting BB guns, that wasn't my girls, but some do. Uh, Coveralls, there's all kinds of different people in the world. That isn't the point. The point is, oh, little boys and little girls, what a wonderful thing it is that God made you a little boy. I hope you say this to your little boys. What a wonderful thing it is that God made you a little girl. Oh, we're different. Of course we are. What a wonderful thing God did. God made male and female without apology, without embarrassment, without awkwardness, maleness and femaleness in all the details of both. Never once did God say, oh boy, (laughs) this is awkward. As he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he did not turn around and say, oh, for goodness sakes, what have I done? No, the glory of God created, presented here, image of God, man and woman. This is the scripture. And not to be apologized for, again, my goodness sakes, what a wonderful thing God has done. And as culture presses in upon us to say, yeah, but just hold off on all the yabbits and let's glory in what God has done. There's, there are reasons for this, of course. In his image, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal, different. Do you hear me? Equal, different. Humanity to reflect truth about God 
Why the difference? Well, because it reflects truth about what God is like in his image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal in glory, co-equal in power, yet different. Yes, humanity was to reflect by God's own design what's true about him. Well, we can go more down that road, but I come back to Psalm 8 and remind us human beings have dignity and value because they were made by the hand of a loving God. Verse verse 5, you've crowned him, humanity that is, with glory and honor. This is humanity. This is the value of, of people from the womb inside it to the end. Whether we're talking about people who are at the older end of life, maybe declining in physical abilities, declining in mental abilities, image of God, great value. Some months ago, getting gas, I ran across a doctor friend who described for me, because he does a lot of elder care, described for me some of the pressures that come his way, you know, to kind of, I mean, wrap it up. I mean, come on, you know how much money this is costing? And he pressing back to say, hold on. These aren't your dogs. You know, you put them down. These are people. Image of God. No, you don't do that. So we're, let's, let's keep track of the lines of what's ethical and right, biblical and moral. So let's not send people off early. And likewise, at the beginning, there's all the things going on around us now. Why is there value? Is it a pragmatic thing? Yes, but think about hold everything. Image of God from the point of conception. Psalm 139 screams this truth. You knit me together in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it all together. You saw me. My days were written before there was one of them, written in your book. Psalm 139. So here, why is there human value? You've crowned him with glory and honor. This text describes the why. Made in the image of God. A loving creator who never makes a mistake. Human value, regardless of our abilities, regardless of how tall or short, regardless of the language we were born with, color of our skin, economic worth, impact on the world. Sometimes people talk about, uh, you know, is it a valuable life and things like that. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's go to the scripture and let's be informed here. Okay? Well, human beings have dignity and value because of God. Now, even as the psalm writer, David, concludes by almost quoting, you could say, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, all of those things about dominion. It's why God made humans as the, the highest of all. We are, boy, push back against this. Humans, humans are not just another animal. We're not just smarter animals. We're the only creature on planet Earth made in the image of God. Okay, press on this, please, would you? No, we're not just the highest in the food chain. No, no. Human value made in the image of a loving and wise God. That's why humans have value. I want to I give you one more thing to think about as we come toward a close, and then we'll step right to communion where we see not only God's value in us because he made us, but in sending a Savior and Redeemer. Um, some years ago, as some of you ever, if you ever watched the series Cosmos or Cosmos, you will remember Carl Sagan People talk today about the big lie. Let me give you another one, okay? Carl Sagan began his series all the time by saying the universe is all it is or was or ever will be. Then he went on to say we stand at the edge of the universe and we feel something. And so he said that. The universe is all it is or was or ever will be. Scientists, and people said, well, that's science. Baloney. 
That's a Greek word. That's not, that's not for one, that's not even science, is it? That's, this is a religious statement. It's the religion of naturalism. And in the religion of naturalism, there is no God. All that is is what you see. That cannot be proven in a scientific laboratory. can't be proven anywhere. No scientist has explored the entire universe can come back and say there's no God. Have you looked everywhere? No. you got a telescope. Oh, buddy, do you know how weak that thing is? You have not looked everywhere. You, you can't say that. That's not, a, that's not a scientific statement. When people say today, I'm not pressing against pandemics, when they say believe the science, I look at people like this and say, he's a scientist. I don't believe him at all. No, the universe is not all that is or was or ever will be. God is the one who always was and always is and ever will be. All of this is the work of his hands. So stick with the scripture, please. Stick with the word of God. So those are things to think about. I hope you develop a biblical nose for this stuff. As it comes across the airwaves or in a book or magazine, I hope you sniff it out and say, baloney, nonsense, not true, doesn't stand up to scripture. I hope you get a sense about this and learn it. Doxology should frame us. Praise is right, I'm saying, and it's transformative. It transforms our view of the world. Now, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to shift toward communion. Not a big disjuncture, let me tell you, because God values us because he made us. And we see his value in his sending of a son, Jesus, to be our redeemer and savior and king. So I'm going to read a couple things in a moment from 1 Peter. Don't put your Bibles away yet. I'm going to go to 1 Peter in a moment, just for a, a, a brief time. But I want to pray as we conclude these thoughts and begin to shift a bit to think about God as our redeemer and our creator. Pray with me, if you would, please. Our Father, your word is very clear, very powerful. Thank you that we see you and that you speak to us. Thank you that you created us. Each one of us can look to you as our God and our King. You are the one who made us. We did not. We are your people, the sheep of your hand. And we honor you and praise you as our creator. We honor you as our redeemer. Those of us who know Christ as our savior, I hope everyone in this room, those watching, oh, that we would know Christ truly. But for those of us who do, our father, you are our our savior, redeemer, and friend as well. Jesus, having died on the cross for our sin, paid the penalty none of us could ever pay, risen from the dead. We remember Jesus this morning. Thank you for that great love with which you loved us even when we were separated from you. Help us now to honor you rightly in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you, as always, to share with us in receiving communion. And the way we do that these days, of course, continuing with communion stations on the sides and down the middle. Uh, in a moment when I invite you to go uh, to be served, those on the sides, if you'd come up by the windows, and uh, come back down these aisles in the middle here. If you'd come down the middle aisle and circulate back, that would be great. Feel free to serve someone near you, uh, someone who's mobility impaired near you. Please keep track of those around you and serve them if you would. Take both cups, little crackers in the bottom. I'll say more about what all of that is about in just a moment, but for the moment anyway, if you know Christ is your Savior, share with us now, if you would, in remembering Jesus. You get those elements, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Would you please come?
We belong to God because he made us. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we belong to him because he redeemed us. First Peter, I'm always intrigued by the things that Peter says because as Jesus was betrayed, arrested, off to trial, beaten, scourged, you remember what Peter did. Three times, three times he denied Christ. Wow. So when he says in his first letter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mercy, mercy, mercy. By his power, we're being kept, being guarded. He keeps us. He keeps us, Peter could say. He does. He keeps us. Later in that same chapter, we're not ransomed with things like gold, silver. No, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's how we're redeemed. Peter, the denier, would know. And what about you? Do you know his mercy? Oh, I hope you do. In the communion celebration, as Christians have observed it down for the last couple thousand years, it's different down through the years. Different settings, different places. Above ground, underground, in times of peace, in times of war. Big crowds, little crowds. God's people coming together to say, no, he died for us. A little cracker, a little piece of bread, whatever it is we have today, points to his body broken for us. The wounds. Even as Jesus said at Last Supper, remember me. Let's do that together. Even as a little cracker points us to the body of Christ broken for us, the cup points us to his blood shed for us, blood that I suspect Peter watched even from a distance. He ran out and wept. Yes, he did after the denials. But I suspect at some point he made his way to the cross and saw blood pouring down. Mercy like no other. Jesus, that last supper said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that as well. I would like to pray for us as we head out that thoughts of Christ, doxology, all of these things would transform the way we think about life and the world around us. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Our Father, you are our King and our Master, our Lord. You are the great I am, the always existing God. Indeed, your name, all that you are, is majestic. Thank you for being our creator. Thank you for being our savior in the person of Jesus. Fathers, we head out to a holiday, of course, tomorrow. Much to be thankful for and much to pray about. The week ahead, whatever we do, our Father, would you direct our thoughts, help us to think like Christians should based on the word of God, to love what you love and ultimately to love you the most.